Four of five. So uh, next week we'll close down this series and we'll uh, launch into the next thing. This uh, passage that we're in today is actually the entire reason that this psalm uh, meant something to me in the first place. I I admitted in week one that the whole reason that I knew there was uh, 116 psalms is I was at a U2 concert in 2001 and Bono, uh, the great preacher, uh, stands up on stage and in opening a song he says, what can I give back to God for the blessings poured out on me? He said, I lift high the cup of salvation, a toast to the Almighty. And then he launches into this song, and I couldn't get out of my head. I had, you know, goosebumps, and I said, I don't know what worship music is, but it sounds like that. And, and from that moment, I started digging into this psalm and figuring out what is it that he pulled out of that, that that is available to me that I've never even heard before. And so today, as we walk through Psalm 116, we're in verses 12 through 14. And so the NIV version um, that we're reading here says it this way. It says, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. David asked the question, what should I return to God for his goodness? David says, what what can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? In a sense, he's saying, God has blessed me so deeply that my only response is to turn and offer some of that blessing back to him. Because great blessings demand to be shared. This was made apparent to me recently when uh, my eight-year-old and I are on something of a, a confectionery tour of Ohio. You have candy bars we don't have in Texas, okay? And so anytime we're somewhere, like once a month or so, she doesn't care that much for sweets, but when we're somewhere and she sees or I see a, some candy bar she's never had before, she'll point it out and I'll, you know, look at her and I'll give her that, the dad face, which is like, you know, we shouldn't, which is her way of knowing that she's supposed to like um, give me love that I don't deserve and make big sweet daughter eyes at me, in which case I then got what I was looking for, I buy the bar, and then we, we go from there. A few weeks ago, we were at a convenience store at a carryout, and we, we saw a whatchamacallit. And she goes, Dad, what is that? I said, well, it's obvious it's a whatchamacallit. And she's like, yeah, but what is it? And rather than get into a, you know, Laurel and Hardy sketch there, we just decided to, to move on. And we bought the whatchamacallit, and I gave it to her in the car, and she's looking at me. And it was like in Willy Wonka, you know, when he picks up the coin, and he's opening up that chocolate bar, and it's got the gold ticket in it, and that excitement, and the music is swelling. And I feel like this in the car as she's looking at it, and I'm like, you can open it. She gets a big, deep breath, and she opens the whatchamacallit, and she takes her first bite. She looks at me, and she goes, Dad, you have got to try this. She tasted the goodness of the whatchamacallit, the puffed crispy rice, the candied peanut butter center, the chocolate coating. You're hungry now. She tasted the goodness, and her response was, what can I give back to Dad for the blessing he just gave me? And she offers me something of what I just gave her. I've had a whatchamacallit. I just gave you a whatchamacallit. If I wanted a whatchamacallit, I'd have bought myself a whatchamacallit. And yet, her heart is so overwhelmed with the goodness of this thing that she's tasted, she knows no other option but to offer the goodness back to me, to return it to me. The only response to blessing is blessing. It should be a little bit humbling and also a little bit mind-blowing when we think about our own lives and, and the culmination of our works, right? All these Christian things we do throughout our days. Ultimately, what we're, what we're looking at is the idea that every gift is a response. Every gift we give God is a response to something he's already given us. Every prayer is a response to him speaking truth into our lives. Every work is a response to his ultimate work in Jesus. Everything we do is a, a response. It's us taking something that he's bestowed upon us and going, do you, do you want to taste this? And if God the Father is anything like 
me the father or you the father? You the mother, the grandmother, the aunt, the uncle, the cousin. Yeah, that feels good to receive that back. It feels good to take a bite and enjoy that goodness together. To walk in the goodness of that. Second time in the series that we've had to sit on the idea of God's preeminence. You ever, you ever sit down and you ever pray, uh, God, I give you today, or you're starting a meeting, or you're getting ready to start your community group, and you go, God, we just give you this time? And the irony being that it wasn't ever anyone else's but his anyway. Well, God, we give you this time that you created and own and are sovereign over and actually could do whatever you want with, but we're going to give it to you. Well, it was never ours. Like David, our prayer could be, God, we give you this time back. You've entrusted it to us, and we want to lay it at your feet. We want to give you back some of what you've already given us. We want to return to you the blessing that you've given us, and we want our focus to be you and you alone. On one hand, it's a little bit like like if a a kid takes a $10 bill out of mom or dad's wallet and then hands it back to them. That's like a little bit insulting because it's not really a gift. But on the other hand, when a kid takes the $10 bill and goes and does something great with it and hands back the reward of that, the tie that... um, doesn't match anything for Father's Day or the homemade, you know, like pan holder that they give to mom for Mother's Day. Those presents are spent with mom and dad's own money, and yet somehow they touch us. David gets this. He says, what can I return to God? What can I give back? And then God's preeminence is in all through the rest of the passage. God's goodness. He lifts Christ's cup. He calls on God's name, and then he's going to serve God's people. It's all about God. And David's response to God's blessing is to return blessing back to God. What's interesting about this passage to me is it, I feel like it parallels another. One that uh, church has spent an inordinate amount of time talking about uh, for good reason. Paul laid out a similar idea. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is one of the famous Christian passages that you hear in church over and over. Give your bodies a living sacrifice. Give your life your living sacrifice. And people for centuries have tried to make sense of it, have tried to come up with a new illustration to make it make sense uh, even to our own souls because this, it's a complicated idea. Where we start is this idea, therefore, anytime you see therefore in scripture, you ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? It's referring backwards. It's saying, because of what was just said, this. So Romans 1 through 11 is like this most incredible, incomparable survey of Christianity. It's God and it's sin and salvation and Holy Spirit, and it kind of lays all of that out in the first 11 chapters. And then Paul says, therefore, as if, if, if you believe this, if you are a Christian, and you believe in the Christian truth that I've just laid out, if you really understand the gospel, if you've really taken it in and internalized it and it's yours now, if you own it in your deepest parts, therefore, live like this. Live in this way as a response. A living sacrifice. We've said it before in here, sacrifice is a Greek word that actually, it's a word for killing. And so you can't have a sacrifice without a death. So there's this natural paradox in saying the living killing. Therefore, go and live your life as a living killing, an alive dead person. It's intentional. Right? Paul's reader knows of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He knows what an offering of atonement was, right? The idea that there's a requirement for death in order for there to be the sacrifice made. 
That's not this. Jesus' suffering and sacrifice ended all sin offerings. So this is something entirely different. This is an offering of gratitude and praise. One commenter, I was reading through some different things about this passage, and one said the trouble with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. Because in the old system, a sacrifice always gets resolved. It's killed. The incense is burned. It's over. There's an end point. That sacrifice is done, and we move on. A living sacrifice means that every day, every hour, every moment, right now, as followers of Christ, we have to deliberately and consciously and continually and perpetually offer ourselves to him. It's constant. It's never over. It never resolves, and we get to go, that was good. Check. The Christ life is an unresolving, living, ongoing, perpetual, continual sacrifice, which, if it sounds intense to you, kind of intense. But it's a living sacrifice. And for those of us covered in Christ, that's a whole lot better than the old system. And yet something still dies with a living sacrifice. It's a, it's a living killing. So what dies? What dies is the right to live as you choose. When you become a follower of Christ, the right to live as you desire, the right to live as you should choose, goes away. This is a wild, radical idea in 21st century America where independence is our chief, my independence and my freedom. These are the things I value above all things. And what it means to be a follower of Christ is to say, yeah, I can make a choice whether I want uh, the Big Mac or the Quarter Pounder, and yes, I make the choice whether I live on this street or that street. And so this is not the absence of choice in your life. This is not a micromanaging God. But this is the idea that you no longer belong to yourself. The idea that you uh, would know best what should happen in your life is not something you hold anymore as a believer. You hold the belief that God knows best, that his word is true. And so even when, when I disagree with the Bible, well, there's a pretty clear indication of who's wrong. It's as if to say, Lord, you know best, and I'm going to trust you. Here's what it says in your word, and I don't always like it. I don't always get it. I don't always understand it, but I'm still going to live it. And so I don't choose anymore. I choose you, and now my life is yours. That, that sort of feels like a death. It's the death of our agenda. In an academic town, it's, it's especially interesting because in an academic town, what reigns is the eminence of your cognitive function. Your ability to think and create new ideas and do research and find new breakthroughs, this is like, this is the top of the mountain. This is the pinnacle of human existence. And this says, learn all you want. I know it already. I know it best, and I know it completely. God smiles upon his children, and he goes, awesome. If that is life-giving, and it's a passion that you pursue, that is good, and it is right, and it is whole, and yet don't think that there's something we're going to discover that God doesn't already know, that he hasn't already figured out, that he hasn't already seen. When we're in trials, I often go to pray with people that are struggling with this, that, or the other. It's health or it's something else. And, and, and I always find myself saying, God, this didn't surprise you. And I feel like I have to say it out loud every time because when I walk into something that I didn't see coming, it's a surprise to me. I didn't see that illness coming. I didn't see this, this relational break. I didn't see that. And I have to center myself and say, God, you're not surprised. And if you're not surprised that this happened, you're not surprised with what's coming six weeks from now or six months from now. Paul is talking about a whole life sacrifice of time, of talent, of treasure. 
money is always a great way to look at uh, this idea, this living killing, this uh, living sacrifice. Generosity is a great way to look at it. In the Old Testament, the tithing number, most people would know, is 10%, right? In the Old Testament, it was very clear. You give 10% of your income to the temple and the priest, and they, they do what they got to do when they eat off of it, and that's good. A lot of churches would say you should give 10% of your income to the local church. We'd say that would be great. Unfortunately, those who would argue, I always go, well, we could go to a New Testament model, which is like give away everything, and no one really wants to roll that way either. And so those who complain about the 10%, oh, that's so archaic. That's Old Testament. We're on the New Covenant. I'm like, yeah, right. Remember what Jesus said? Give it all away. Don't take a money belt. Lay down your life. Uh-oh. And then people go, yeah, 10% sounds good. That sounds fair. <laughs> right? The average American uh, church member. The average American church member gives 2.5%. Not right, not wrong. That's the average. In the Great Depression, in the hardest economic times in the history of our country, the average church member gave 3.3%. So we give less. If Americans gave to the church at Old Testament levels, 10%, there'd be $165 billion additional dollars brought into American churches. What does this mean? World hunger would be gone. Deaths from preventable diseases would then be gone. There would be clean water and sanitation provided to every single human being on earth. We would fully eliminate illiteracy. We would fund every overseas Christian missionary. And we'd have, oh, about $100 billion left to play with. But my money's mine. And what God says is when we unleash the resources, the life, the talent, when we unleash that upon the world, incredible things happen. Talent. My wife can play a piano. She can sing. Emily sings, and we got a viola, and there's a drummer. And what if they said, mm, uh, I'll give you 2% of my talent? You'd have me leading you in worship. <laughs> and this place would be empty next week. But people who give of their talent, we, we, yeah. What about Matt Valentine, who's got a job and kids and plenty to do, and yet he gives his time to our youth? The young life leaders who have all the opportunity in the world to do whatever they should want, and they say, you know what, 20 hours a week to give to other people for no reward. That sounds like a good idea. The church is blessed by that. But when we look at our lives as ours, we miss out on that. We miss out on the opportunity to be generous. We miss out on the opportunity to share our time with each other, our relationship. We miss out because it's about me. And what this is saying is we have to die to our own agenda in all things, whole life. And when we do, we'll watch and see what God might do with that heart. I gave Brixton a dollar, my five-year-old, the other night. We are at the Sunday station. A couple other families were there from the church and um, she was fake babysitting a baby, which is the baby was like sleeping in a carrier, and so she was just standing next to the baby. She's like, I'm babysitting dad, and I went, that's awesome. And she said, because she's my younger child, she said, can I get paid for this? <laughs> sure. I said, I'll give you a dollar if you stand there for a while. She's like, sweet. She stood there for a while, you know, like 17 seconds. She came over to get her dollar. Dad, I did it. I babysat that child. I was like, but this, she's still there. She's good now. Can I have my dollar? I give my kid a dollar. The father 
gives the child a gift, gives the child a resource, gives the child a dollar. She holds on to it for a minute, shows it to all her little friends. Look what I got, got this dollar. Not long after that, another one of the little children there, a little boy, gets his feelings hurt, is wrestling, gets hurt, um, makes a big deal of it, and he gets put in Sunday Station timeout, which is the worst timeout, you know, where you're on that grassy knoll and everybody else is having fun and eating ice cream and you're sitting by yourself. So this poor young man is um, having Sunday Station timeout. So over there by himself, all the other kids are playing. Brixton looks at me, looks at her dollar, walks over. She goes, Dad, I'm going to make him feel better. I'm going to give him my dollar. So, I mean, I'm like giving her more money. Just do whatever, you, you know. <laughs> but it makes me happy. In a purely logical way, I said, what a waste of money. I just gave you the dollar, not to give to that kid. He's in trouble for a reason. <laughs> but what she's doing is she's blessing me. She's returning to me the blessing I gave her because I watch what she does and she's modeling that. I give her the dollar and she goes, what can I give back? How can I make this matter? How can I make this worth something? And in some little five-year-old way, it makes sense to her that the dollar really isn't hers. That it's mine and it's to be used on something good. And she goes and does it. As a father, my heart swells at that. We are given lives and minds and breath and resources. And the question that David asked that we should ask every day is, what can I give back to God with the blessings he's poured out on me? There's a a wise man that I know, he's in his uh, mid to late 80s now. We were talking about money, tithing, and he goes, yeah, when I was a young man, I, I made a decision. He said, at some point, I decided I wanted to give more away than I consumed. I said, I don't understand what you're aiming for. And he said, well, if it's 100%, he says, I want to be in a position where I give away 51% and only consume 49%. It's just a goal of mine. I looked at it. I said, well, how's it going? And this was years ago. And he said, three years ago, after increasing my giving, my generosity 1% every year, I got there. He goes, and this year, for the first time, you know, the second, third time ever, I guess, I'm giving away 51% of my income, and I'm living on 49%. And he goes, I've never felt fuller. I've never felt richer. And I looked at this man who's on in his years and has all the wisdom in the world, and he didn't say, I wish I would have saved more for this, or I wish I would have had a nicer that. He says, you know what a joy it's been to every year find 1% to stick over here and give away? And the legacy he leaves to his children and his grandchildren, as he's told the story, as they look and And they go, you know what, Papa doesn't have the nicest house or the nicest, but man, look at all those people's lives he's touched. That touched me. I thought, you know, in my own mind, I was absolutely living in the 10% legalism world. Well, I give my 10, that's it. The rest is for party time. Let's go. And what what he illustrated to me is, is this heart of what do I give back? What do I give to God just to bless him for blessing me? Until I had kids, I was on a nice pace of increasing my giving once 1% a year. And we're stalled. And yet I think about it, and I think of people that I know that are struggling financially or go, I don't know, I can't give to anything. Give to Young Life, give to Crew, give to the church, give. People go, yeah, but I'm, you don't understand. I mean, there's this expense and that expense, and I go, I go back to this guy, and I say, what if you're giving 1% this year, and next year you gave 2? And you gave 2% next year, and the next year you gave 3. And, and, and one day, what would that look like? 
Because I'm idealistic enough and naive enough to look at a world and think there is $165 billion sitting out there. And there do not need to be starving kids. There does not need to be death from malaria. There does not need to be illiteracy or sex trafficking or whatever. It doesn't need to exist. But it's on us. It's hard stuff. We don't like it when someone else chooses where we're going to lunch, much less how to live our lives. Romans 12.1 answers the question, what does it mean to take your hands off your life? It means to die to self and live a life towards God. It's a story from a mid-20th century professor about a, a girl in the 1930s, a young girl who vowed to be a missionary in Asia. She made a lifetime missionary commitment. And he knew that most people don't last when they make this commitment. It's a a nice thing that she made in the heat of passion, but it would probably fall away. But hers didn't, unlike most. She finished high school and persisted. She researched, how do I become a missionary to Asia? It's really dangerous. The 30s were not a safe time in Asia. A lot of missionaries were killed. And the missionary group she chose to go through had only two requirements. One, she had to get trained, cross-cultural ministry, theology, language, and number two, she had to be married. Reasons of safety and culture, they weren't going to send her alone. So she prays, it's the 1930s, and she says, Lord, I I take my hands off my life. I give you everything, my life, my comfort, my safety. Just give me a husband so I can go. She goes to four years of Bible college. She has no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. Does two years of missionary training school, has no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. All those semesters, no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. The night before she was to graduate of missionary training school, she says she sat in her dorm, an angry woman. She looks up at God and she goes, I gave my whole life to this. She says, I literally have nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. I'm qualified to do this and only this. This training doesn't apply in the business world. I asked for one thing, God, and you didn't do it. She said somewhere in her anger, she felt a release and a realization. She wasn't miserable because she'd taken her hands off her life. She was miserable because she never had. She realized she'd been doing everything possible to put God into her debt so he'd have to obey her. She says, I wasn't serving God, I was extorting him. So for the first time in her life, she says she really relinquished control. And and she looks back and she said, I spent a third of my life preparing for missionary service. A third of my life. I was a living sacrifice, but not for God. I was preparing for my own adventure. And it was only my resentment that diagnosed the actual issue. Because I hadn't given up my life. I'd just chosen the life I wanted and I tried everything I could do to get God to obey me. God is infinitely wise and really in control, she realized. Her lack of a husband was not a flaw in the system, but part of the plan. So yeah, almost all the time, every week, everyone's in a battle. Most of us hate how we got there. Big or small, we don't like what we're in, we don't like how we got there. It's not a flaw in the system. Perhaps it's part of the plan. What is that in your life? What does that look like in your life? If we find ourselves giving up on God or resenting the results of our efforts, we have to be willing to ask the question, did we really take our hands off our life or is this our way to get God to do what we want? Romans 12.1, it says this, this living sacrifice is our spiritual worship. Worship can translate to service and then spiritual translate to true. You've heard um, this said. So it's like my spiritual service, my, my true service. Spiritual worship becomes true service. What is this living sacrifice? It's just the true service. It's the way that you lay your life down. The reality is everyone is worshiping something. Everyone is sacrificing for something. Everybody is laying their life down for something. Offering our true service to something or someone. Whether it's something you can name at the moment or something you're not totally sure, it's something. 
Whatever it is you live for, you are a living sacrifice to that thing. And so the illusion is that we're free. When the reality is that we are all living for something and sacrificing our lives and laying ourselves down for something. That our time and our talent and our treasure go somewhere for something. So if you're on the altar of career, at some point you look around and you realize it doesn't last. If you're on the altar of romance, you find that it might fade. If you're on the altar of materialism, you realize it never satisfies. And some people are going, nah, I'm independent. I'm not on any of that stuff. You are on the altar of independence and you realize that the loneliness of living for self will crush you eventually. Paul says you are going to give your life to something. Therefore, if you believe in Christianity from creation to Jesus to resurrection to salvation and the indwelling Holy Spirit that has been left, you'll recognize that nothing satisfies like giving back your life to God. Nothing else fulfills or compares, and it looks paradoxical. You mean the thing that's going to fulfill me is not chasing any of the stuff that I think is going to fulfill me, which is a beautiful kind of mirror image of of this whole idea of a living killing, this paradox that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. People say, how could that satisfy me? How could living for creator God be more satisfying than all the stuff or the status in the world? And then you talk to people who've done it, and you get it. The people who have done this would be the first ones to stand in line and go, you should do it too. Yeah, but think of what you gave it. No, 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 no. You have to do it to get it, which is what David lays out for us. I love the message version of of our passage. So what can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? I lift high the cup of salvation, a toast to God, a toast to the Almighty. I'll pray in the name of God. I'll do what I promised I'd do, and I'll do it together with his people. David is entangled in death. He's saved and set free, and his response is to offer his life as a toast to God. Do you know what a toast is? You go to a wedding and someone gives a toast? It's not an offering that's given up. It's not a value added to the bride and groom. It's a hand held high and it's words of affirmation and it's this tearful, meaningful, moment-by-moment expression of love and goodness. And at some point, he says, to the bride and groom, and everybody drinks, And someone else gives a toast. And as simple as it is, that's how profound this life can be. Where God is not expecting us to come and add value to him, to add weight to him. God is sufficient and perfect and beautiful and whole. And he's invited us to this party to which our lives are then able to be a toast to him. Lord, you did this for me. Lord, you loved me enough. Lord, you sent Christ. Lord, you got me through that challenge. Lord, you took me through that valley. I'm going to lift my life up as a toast to you. That's my story. On the path to death. On the path to destruction, self-destruction, relational destruction, relational dysfunction, and every sin you can imagine, that was my path. And then a guy that had no other thing to do, I suppose, because, you know, he wasn't a young married guy with kids and all that, except he was, but he called himself a young life leader, and I didn't know what that was. And he says, he's at my basketball game, and he goes, hey, you want to come join us on Monday? And I went, I don't know. What's us, and what, is, what are you talking about? And he starts befriending me. 
and I start showing up on Monday and there's all these other people there and some of them seem weird. They sing things I don't quite understand or they pray about stuff and I don't know what that's all about. And I tell him, I don't know what that's all about and he goes, that doesn't matter, keep coming. So I show up drunk one week and I show up high the next. No problem, keep coming. And there was a moment in my life where everybody had bailed. Every institution had failed, every uh, parental structure was broken. And there was this guy who at some point in his life had made this pledge to say, what can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? And at some point in his life said, you know what? I'm going to lay my life down for other people. I'm going to see other lives brought to freedom like I know. And it's going to cost me a whole lot more than it's going to earn me. So he kept inviting me. He invited me to his kids' birthday parties and to help him rake leaves in his front yard. I thought I was like, you know, indentured servitude and what I didn't know was he just wanted to spend more time with me and one day he invites me to camp and he goes it's your best best week of your life for your money back and I said I don't know if I believe that but my mom doesn't have any money so it's the only way this is going to work because I got to claim this was not the best so I can get her money back at the end and he goes that's fine come on the fourth night of camp a guy preaches the gospel it's irresistible I said I need that They invite me to a campaigner's group, so I go to this Bible study with these people who are way further down the road than me, and they say, don't worry about it, you'll get there. And then for the next seven years, I stumbled and I fall, I stumble and I slip, I backslide is the Christian term, and this guy's always there checking on me, always calling. And at one point he goes, I think God has something to do with your life. I don't know what it is, but it's there. Not long after that, God calls me to Africa. Africa changes everything about the way I know Christianity. I come back and I said, I don't know if you know what you did in my life. He goes, it doesn't matter. Someone did it in mine first. He goes, your job is to go and do that for others. I was a train wreck. And somebody laid their life down. and said, it's okay. You'll get there. Come with me. Someone offered a living sacrifice, a moment-by-moment, deliberate, conscious, continual toast to the Almighty. And when I went to go and return it to him, he goes, pass it on. Because that's what blessing does. Blessing requires us to continue. Bless. The reality for us is distraction will come. So we could charge out of here and be like, my life is going to be all for Jesus all the time. And you'll hit the car and you'll see an advertisement and you'll get a flat tire and distraction comes. Bad days will happen, we slip, we fall, and we will find ourselves at other altars all throughout life. And the reason we have a church, a connected body of believers, is that we would recognize it together. And that together we would again encourage each other, hey, you don't have to stay there. And we would again lay our lives down before God. So my prayer is that we would give our days and our hearts and our sweat and our lives, our treasure, we would give it to God as a gift in response to the blessing of life and salvation that he first gave us in Christ. That we would look at a lost and dying world, at a dark and hurting place, and we would not see something to shut out so that we might not be contaminated, but we would see an opportunity to give back to God and to give back to this place of the incredible blessing that he's given to us in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, you are merciful.